I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. You can follow us at Open Mind TV and support our series on Patreon at patreon.com slash The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome Kevin Esfeld to our broadcast today. He is sculpting evolution and promoting responsive science at the MIT Media Lab. Kevin, it's a pleasure to have you on today. Pleasure to be here. Kevin, you're an expert on evolution and the nature of the pandemic and how it evolves from here is of enormous consequence. What strikes you at this moment about these variants that are spreading around the world and the potential for you know, more evolution of this COVID-19? It's always hard to predict for a particular virus where we don't have a lot of data, which is sadly still true of the cause of this pandemic. But we do actually know a fair amount about other seasonal human coronaviruses. And these are viruses that jumped from animals to humans in the past, and they've been evolving in human populations ever since. One of the things we know about them is that they do keep evolving to escape our immune responses. That is, the same sorts of things that we're seeing in SARS-CoV-2 with these variants that are, I don't want to say vaccine-resistant, because that's not quite the right term, but they have evolved mutations that help them escape the full power of our immune response. And the point is the common cold does this all the time, because that's what the four seasonal human coronaviruses cause. And they're not any more serious than that, because we have multiple wings to our immune system. The antibody wing gets all the attention. That's the one that our vaccines primarily work to stimulate. But there's also the cellular wing, and we know that that creates immunity in the form of reduced disease severity. And what that means is the virus is going to change. It's going to change in ways that means that the antibodies that the current vaccines create aren't going to bind as well. Some of them still will. Some of them won't bind as well. That means our immune response is going to be a little bit weaker, enough that we'll probably be able to be infected probably not enough for us to get seriously ill. So long story short, I'm not super concerned by these supposed immunovasive mutants because they're exactly what we would expect and they're what we've seen in these seasonal human coronaviruses, which cause the common cold. Today, they're some of the safest viruses out there as long as you've had them before. Where does it, that leave us in terms of the vaccination of the public when you say as long as they've had them before or as long as they've been vaccinated? That's exactly right. Now, to be fair, most of the vaccines only show our immune system the spike protein of the new virus. They don't give it the rest of it. And the spike protein is only a comparatively small fraction of the overall virus's proteins. So it's possible that even though the vaccines give us better resistance than having gotten the disease before, that much of that is antibody-mediated. And so you could plausibly imagine some degree of vaccine escape, but it's going to be partial. It's going to be gradual. It's going to take a bunch of time. Maybe we'll need booster shots at worst in a year, but things are looking a lot better than I had originally anticipated a year ago in terms of how well our vaccines work and how low the odds are that we're really going to need those new versions of the mRNA vaccines that Moderna and Pfizer are developing that specifically target the new variant mutations. We might need them. 
they'll be available, but I suspect it's more of a, you should get them because then you're less likely to get this common cold, which might be serious in someone that hasn't been vaccinated or hasn't got it before. I wanted to ask you about the origin of the virus and what the evolution from the very early stage of the virus tells us about the origin. Um, This is something that was a curiosity for a segment of society at the outset of the pandemic and has largely waned, uh, most likely because of the ill-preparedness of so many countries and the livelihoods and lives that have have been cost and shattered as a result and the focus on the ongoing human pain and anguish, which is overwhelming. My curiosity about the origin of virus, unlike a lot of other journalists, commentators, but also scientists, remains. And I saw you quoted in a story about that question, how the evolution of the virus in its infancy, what it could tell us about how actually this thing originated? Well, this is an area that is outside my area of direct study. I have not dived in deeply enough to really give any kind of well-informed speculation. I can give less well-informed speculation, but really all I can say is it could have come from an animal it could have come from a tissue culture dish. I couldn't really tell you which, and of the evidence I've seen, it's not conclusive enough to be able to tell you which. However, Also, there's a a deficit of any evidence that suggests spillover from an animal. I mean, in the way that you found the intermediary hosts in SARS and MERS. And so... It's not just that you can't, you don't have evidence of of um, the potential lab leak um, or the intermediary animal. You have no, you know, you have no real basis for exploring the question, and, and it is a question that has to be explored. So, based on what we know in the fact that there is no intermediary animal that's been identified. Um, Is it true that there's actually more evidence to suggest that it was from a lab? I would not say there is more evidence to suggest that it is from a lab. I would say that it is plausible that it is from a lab and it is plausible that it is not from a lab. And that's deeply frustrating. But this is one of those cases where we don't have enough evidence to say your point about we don't understand which animal immediately it came from holds for both because there's only so much one can do to a virus in the lab. We're not good enough to design viruses from scratch. We're not going to be good enough to do that for, I hope, at least two more decades. In this case, we don't even know what you would have started from. That is, if it had been cultivated in the lab, it would have been it would have been in order to learn what kinds of coronaviruses could jump out and bite us exactly like this one had. That's called gain-of-function research, and it's very controversial in the scientific community because what it's saying is we should deliberately try to make the mutations that could cause a pandemic in order to better prepare our defenses. And the risk has always been, well, what if it gets out? Because there were lab escapes of SARS-1. 
their laboratory accidents do occur. They occur at a very low rate, but they do occur. So is that a risk that we should be taking? Very divisive in the scientific community. I'm actually concerned about something else, which is to say, as soon as you identify a virus as being likely to spread as a pandemic in humans, and you share that sequence with the world, you are letting anyone capable of synthesizing a virus like that, you are giving them the power to create the next pandemic. So we need to ask ourselves, not just where did this one come from? That's important, but we might never know. We might never be able to reduce our uncertainty on that one. To me, it's deeply disturbing that it's even plausible that this pandemic could have come from a laboratory. Right. Well, where does the regulation stand when it comes to gain-of-function research since the pandemic? Because, as you point out, um, Fauci and others in the U.S. had supported that research. And uh, has it largely come to a halt and is indefinitely paused, or is it still going on in places? It's still going on, and I would say... I could not say that the gain-of-function research has accelerated. Interest in virology and better understanding which viruses could cause pandemics has skyrocketed. Most scientists, to some extent, dropped what they were doing to work on this pandemic, my lab included. We worked more on the question of what can we learn from this pandemic in order to better prevent the next one. But even so, we devoted more of our resources to pandemic prevention and control of this one to some extent than we had before. And that's true of most labs. And what it means is there's going to be lasting interest in better understanding what it is that allows a virus to spread autonomously through the human population or through animal populations, because people understandably want to know what threats might be out there. But this is a hard one because if we learn which viruses are likely to cause a pandemic if they do spill over from animals into humans, we are giving ourselves the power to make those things deliberately in a legitimate lab interested in preventing that pandemic or in a lab that might be interested in deliberately making a weapon. And you must ask yourself, is that knowledge more likely to prevent the next pandemic or is it more likely to precipitate the next pandemic? This is heresy, by the way. The notion that we might be better off not knowing something goes against most every tradition in science. But it has to be said, our civilization was struck a mighty blow by this pandemic. It was a source of horrific tragedy that ripped away loved ones destroyed lives, brought the economy to its knees, caused more damage than, caused about as much damage as the financial crisis, killed more Americans than both world wars and Vietnam combined thus far, and we're still losing people. Given that degree of damage, we need to seriously consider what it is that we can do to prevent these kinds of things from happening again. And whether or not this pandemic came from an animal or whether it came from a lab, it was not designed to be a weapon because anyone good enough to make this thing could make 
a more devastating weapon. It was not a weapon. It was an accident. And security researchers have a saying. Any system that is vulnerable to accidents is helpless against a deliberate attack. To me, that suggests that we should not pursue an understanding of how to attack, because today we do not understand how to build pandemic viruses. We don't understand enough about viral fitness to deliberately make ones that will spread. That's the point of gain-of-function research. Figure out which mutations let us do that. But right now, although one can tell a story that says that makes us safer, tells us which ones are out there, maybe don't interact with that species as much, hard to imagine we'd develop vaccines in advance because we're then we'd have to make the virus and run challenge trials in humans, which we're not willing to do. But it, one can tell a story where that could make us safer. But it's a way of making us safer that also increases the danger of misuse. And given that a deliberate attack would be more devastating than any natural pandemic, I question whether we should pursue avenues of defense that make it easier to attack when we know we're so vulnerable. Instead, I'd rather bolster our other defenses. For example, if we had been aware of this pandemic early, it definitely seems to have been single focus, that is single point of introduction. And had the authorities in Beijing been made aware of it, even a few weeks earlier, it's plausible they could have stopped it in its tracks based on their later record of success. Is there anything about the transmissibility and the fact that scientists have been very slow to acknowledge the airborne transmission? And the question as to whether fomites on surfaces or particles in the air, not necessarily from coughs and sneezes, but just spoken word, um, any kind of aerosol transmission, um, the, the, the fact that we were so hamstrung by the refusal to see that and the urgency of masks once it was out in the open, is there anything evolutionarily that would suggest because of the um, enigma associated with transmission still, yes, we know you're better protected if you wear masks, but no, we're not, we can't say with any certitude how this thing is passed most often. Does that suggest to you any relationship to whether it was from a lab or from the natural spillover? But there is something intuitive in my mind about this idea that the puzzle piece of transmissibility and the inability still to understand transmissibility suggests to me that the lab is more likely than natural intermediary animal to human transmission. I don't rate that as evidence in favor either way, just because it's roughly how we always thought most of the coronavirus is spread. And part of the problem is we didn't assume that as the baseline likelihood. And I say we, although one of the challenges of the pandemic is that in most cases, public health authorities and the folks in government were very, very slow to 
recognize where the literature was pointing. Those following the primary literature closely as it came out in preprints, which it was doing for the first time in a pandemic emergency like this, it was very clear which way the wind was blowing and that we should be taking many more precautions with respect to masks and especially ventilation, which is something most people still haven't appreciated. Most universities have six foot rules. Well, that's great and all, but what I'm actually wanna know is how good is the ventilation? Are there HEPA filters? What is the air circulation rate? Can you open the windows? Because if you're outdoors, you're almost certainly fine. Like, yeah, wear a mask if you're gonna come near other people, but if you're outdoors, your risk is so much lower. And the same is true if you have good enough air circulation. On a plane with a ventilation system running, you're assuming everyone's wearing masks, you're likely to be pretty safe because that air gets filtered very, very rapidly. So I don't think there is a connection between our lack of knowledge of where the pandemic came from and our slowness to recognize how it was responding. I see it as more of an institutional and bureaucratic problem that the people in charge of communicating with the public were not necessarily the folks on the ground keeping track of where things were going in respect to the research. And we need to do better on that front. We should also not assume that there is something so unusual about SARS-CoV-2. People are saying that, oh, the asymptomatic and presymptomatic transmission, which is what really got us in many ways. People are saying, oh, this is unprecedented. Well, no, it's definitely not unprecedented. Consider something very different virus, such as polio. Most people who got polio had no symptoms, but a small fraction were paralyzed. That's terrifying, but that's a more extreme version of SARS-CoV-2. And so we should not be surprised by a virus that does those things. The fact that it does that is not evidence of a lab escape simply because we wouldn't know how to select for that in the lab. Gain-of-function research selects for mutations that make the virus more effective at replicating the human cells. You can't, in a lab, replicate selection pressure for human-to-human -human transmission by aerosols as opposed to something else. What you can do is make the virus more likely to gain a foothold in a body once it's in. Lower the minimum infectious dose. Speed right. the time and, and that, of viral and replication. And, and, and so you know, we can close on this question of it is appropriate at this moment to ban um, temporarily or permanently gain of function research. I would like to have much more of a societal discussion about this because in much of what I do is inviting communities to weigh in on what they would like to see scientists do when it comes to developing new technologies for editing the shared environment and the like. And when I've talked with most people about gain-of-function research, the typical response when being told that their taxpayer dollars are going to fund researchers attempting to deliberately generate viruses better able to kill people is, are you crazy? Now, there are good scientific reasons for wanting to do that, but there are also good security reasons not to. And I think the fact that that discussion has been limited to the scientific community is a problem. I think we need more discussion of that as a society 
should we pursue all knowledge under the assumption that it makes us safer? Or are there some areas where we should be cautious and we need more open discussion of whether or not we should go forwards in some areas? And while we're at it, of course, we should definitely throw at least $20 billion a year at sequencing everything because I am worried about the future of pandemics that might come from labs that might one day be deliberate, but we cannot build anything biological that doesn't have a genome made of nucleic acids. And what that means is that DNA sequencing is getting so good that if you sequence the river water and the wastewater coming out of cities in depth, then you can detect essentially everything that is in the environment or that has been in the human population. And we know that doing that for SARS-CoV-2 lets us pick it up before the cases show up in a town, when it invaded a town, those places that were doing wastewater monitoring. And by doing it with genome sequencing, just sequencing all the nucleic acids, that kind of nucleic acid observatory worldwide would ensure that we pick up anything that is spreading exponentially. And that's something we should do because anything spreading exponentially is not our friend. It could be a new pandemic virus spreading in people. It could be spreading in one of our domesticated animals. It could be spreading in our crops or it could be an invasive species. But exponential growth of other organisms, especially microbes, on the planetary scale is very, very bad. If we'd had that system in place, my money is that the Beijing authorities could have stopped this pandemic before it ever got started. And there is a good chance that if we put it in place, we will be able to do the same for most future pandemics. And at the very worst, we'll buy ourselves quite a bit more time to react. So nucleic acid observatory. And in the meantime, let's have that discussion about what we should and should not be doing when it comes to learning more about how to build pandemics. Kevin Asfeld of the MIT Media Lab, thank you so much for your insight today. Thank you.